2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe show.
3: Oh, very nice, Mark. You know, there is something so heartwarming about the introduction to this show, and that is absolutely because of you. Well, thank you, Dr. Joe. You're very welcome. Now, how are your oxytocin levels
2: right now? Really good. It usually shoots up pretty high when I do that, you know? yeah yeah get Just prepared. So, you saw me mentally preparing i, I did a little bit absolutely. of that meditation right beforehand yeah i know
3: it. and it's great you you really time it because you know you let by the way that's sophie Schran singing uh one of my songs that i wrote called van gogh you you, you get it right there right at the exact moment yeah. every time it's
2: wonderful. well that was challenging when we had to pivot to zoom right we were trying yeah. to communicate <laughs> with the radio station and trying to figure out when to come in and I think uh, Ben and I have uh, figured it out in uh, in our own minds virtually, and uh, we let it we let it play out to the queue. There's a there's an absolute cue now, and uh, is. And we didn't even talk about it. And he's got the audience cheering, and uh, we're we're yeah. making this happen, COVID or not. It's happening. We are we are. It's happening. And then once all of this stuff is put together, Tom
3: McCoy edits it down and, and makes the podcast and things. Tom, how are you doing this week?
4: Well, it's a very special feeling, Dr. Joe, isn't it? This was our first over 60-day, I believe, of the year here in Marshfields. Is it true?
3: It it, it is so warm and delightful
4: outside
3: today. Who knew? Who knew this was what March would be like? Because the the snow has melted. It's been wonderful. Wonderful. You know, we're going to get started in a minute, but but, um, Mark, you had some story that happened that I think would lead right into this. And then I'm going to have Tom introduce our guests.
2: Well, it was kind of, uh, it led into your book, the fear reflex. Ah, yes. And, you know, I've been spending some time up in the mountains and getting smarter with the mountain air. And I was out skinning in the back mountain back country of where we're staying. And I ran into a woman I haven't seen in many many years and we were talking and I knew she used to work for uh the National Forest and she was a ranger and her husband was a wonderful man may he rest in peace Richard wonderful wonderful guy and he was actually the reason that we decided to get our place where we did but I was I was skinning right we've talked about the skinning that I'm doing now you put the The skin on the bottom of the skis and you actually go up the mountain and then you take them off and you can ski down the mountain it's awesome it's the fastest growing segment of of uh, winter sports right now and you can imagine why with covid people trying to get out in the wilderness and such but so i run into and i start talking to her about you know how where do i go how am i how how am i to get up to the top of the mountain as opposed to you know being drawn back into other neighborhoods and such and um, she was explaining it to me and then she's like, but you know, in the summertime, in the summertime, it's way better. And I'm like, well, they got bears in the summertime, don't they? And she's like, yes, but don't mess with the bears. And I'm like, but shouldn't I be afraid of the bears? Huh. And she said, don't be afraid of the bears and I said well what if they're hungry they're not going to mess with you and I'm and I'm calculating this in my head because there was a time where I was hiking with my boys and I felt the presence of a bear was the bear there was the bear around I don't know but I felt the presence of that bear and it made me really really anxious and it mm. and I've had this, running around in my head because I'm not a mountain person per se. This is a new phenomenon for us. So the thought of hiking in the summertime has always made me really nervous. And she eased that anxiety from me because of her knowledge. And she said, "Yeah." I said, well, what if, what if they come at me? And she says, you Mm -hmm. tell them to get back in the woods. And I'm like, what? Really? Like that, that works. You raise your hand and you yell at the bear. And she's like, yeah, but they're not going to mess with you. If they see you coming, more likely than not, they're, they don't want to see you. They're going to go the other way. And it was really, you know, with COVID and all this fear and everything that's going on, it was really kind of nice and liberating to say, you know what? I'm not going to be afraid of that anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to be afraid of the bear in the woods that's not yeah. going to mess with me. And it's not going to stop me from go- summiting to each one of these mountains around here because that was my obstacle i wasn't gonna hike to the top of these mountains for fear that i might end up being eaten by a bear interesting yeah so she was
3: she was the bearer of good news
2: <laughs> she was she absolutely, absolutely was
4: that was that was a good solid seven exactly. you give okay. a seven on that one really a seven plus
2: yeah oh I, I always i always err on the side i'm an easy grader i'm giving that one an a minus no doubt okay thanks I, I don't know <laughs> oh, we crushed
4: like him
3: to. i'm sorry yeah, so what about this so the fear reflex is um it was one of my books and it, it it is really about in part our fear of being devalued that very okay. often we are afraid that someone will see us as less valuable and this then activates a huge limbic response uh, our survival response but but part of what we want to talk about is, is the diversity, the integration, the, the, the different ways of implicit bias, how things come about. So that in some cases, Mark, your story is really important, but a bear can be dangerous. But I think sometimes we assign a danger to things that we don't know that have absolutely no danger to them. Right. But because they are not part of our group, because it's foreign, it also activates this limbic response in us. So, Tom, I wonder if you could introduce the two guests we have with the understanding that we have one more, hopefully be coming in a little bit later on. She's stuck in traffic.
4: Tom? That's right. Tonight, Dr. Joe, we have the co-authors of Diversity at College, Real Stories of Students Conquering Bias and Making Higher Education More Inclusive. Co-authors, Chriselle Martinez and Professor James Steller of the University of Albany with Barris on the way. Welcome. Welcome, our guest. Uh,
3: Jim Steller, welcome. I know that you are the professor, but I will come back to you. Giselle, nice to meet you. It is Thank a pleasure you. to have you here. How on earth did you get lured in to doing a book <laughs> with Professor Jim Steller? How did that happen?
5: God's will. Can I just put it simple? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that there was a power in being able to share my story and someone with an opportunity and a resource that saw value in what I had to offer uh, outside of just my innate presence, but even in my, my opportunities in life and what life was affording me. And so I'm here by way of Jim and all the other people who believed in me, and even in moments where I didn't really see myself, I'll say so thankful for Jim and of course you all for creating the space.
3: Yeah, it is is the critical thing, having someone believe in you. I mean, that is what it is about. Jim, you know, just so people know, Professor Sell and I go way back, way, way back, many, many years. But he's been doing some incredible research and also enormous leadership in the world of academia.
1: Welcome. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in doing this book. Well, let me focus, uh, and thank you for having me, um, on Chriselle's story, because I was a provost, which is the chief academic officer in charge of all the classes and the students and the faculty. And I went to this um, thing called an EOP convention. uh, And Chriselle, jump in if I get it wrong, uh, which was a gathering of students that were in this educational opportunity program. And I went to show support. And Criselle gave a speech. Uh, And actually, it was a slightly delicate matter because she was running for vice president of the student government, and she's a member of EOP. And I thought, this is going to be interesting because she's speaking to her own people. How will she handle it? And uh, when she was finished with the speech, I was just blown away with her, her deftness about how she really got across the important message of the things that she was standing for in her campaign, but did it in a way... That, that resonated with, but, but didn't abuse her privilege as a member of this community. So as she was walking to the back of the room, I couldn't help myself, I jumped up out of my seat and ran over to the side, discreetly, and said, I've got to meet you, um, uh, and could you please talk to me? Because I don't know how you just did what you just did. And that began um, a friendship, which um, through the years and with uh, six other people, there are eight of us in total, led to this book, um, which was a book, and I won't go too far into this because I want to follow your lead, Dr. Joe, uh, of, of students telling stories based on the theory of, of learning from experience, uh, because universities do a lot to try to promote diversity. Albany certainly does. It's a very diverse place. It's a public. It's got a, a reasonably uh, affordable tuition. It's got 35% African-American, Latino population with 12,000 students. So it's got a lot of great things about it, but we thought that there could be a, book, a booster rocket on this process if the students would would get involved. And in, as Chriselle has taught us to say, speak their truth. Um, mm-hmm. And so that led through Chriselle, who's been a very important part of this entire process, to us all becoming co-authors. And if you look at the book carefully, you'll notice that we're all authors. It's not yeah. me as the older person editing this. Right. And that's exactly how it unfolded. Yes, there are five stories, and there's a few people like me who don't tell them but do some editing and some writing of introductions and conclusions. But it's 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 really important that we, we have the students uh, tell their stories in a way that is accessible to other students so that they will then be empowered to contribute to this very, very important moment in our history where education can do things to promote diversity and inclusion. Well... I cannot wait to hear these
3: stories Uh, it's an incredible book I got a chance to to read I read the stories but I'm going to hand it over to you professor if you could introduce um,
1: your co-authors let's start with Chriselle and we'll just go from here okay so I'll say just in uh, briefly that there are eight of us Uh, seven are like these two here they're recent graduates Uh, we wanted them to be alumni so that they could tell an honest story without any fear of repercussions, but they wanted them to be recent alumni so that the stories would be relevant to these times. Um, And they come from the broad spectrum of students, but they share one thing in common, and that is they all have something to tell us about their story about diversity. And if you take a look at the title uh, of, of, of each chapter, you'll see that there's something that's sort of behind that that we kind of curate the story towards. Uh, such as implicit bias, which is uh, chapter two. Uh, so, Chriselle's story is titled, Chriselle's Story Low Socioeconomic Status and Peer Support Defying Gravity. Mm. And if we could have Chriselle do hers, then I'd like to turn to Agatha, and that'll give us a flavor of the book because that'll give us two competing or not competing, contrasting stories to tell. Uh, and if that's all right, I'll leave it there and ask Chriselle to uh, tell her story of uh defying gravity
5: thank you jim i appreciate that introduction hi everyone chrysal martinez defying gravity uh sidebar john Mayer is one of my favorite artists and so i took that a bit from him um my whole life experience in some way as of now has been a subset of me defying gravity defying the odds that were set against me. I am a brown woman, evidently, born and raised in Harlem, New York, which for those who do or don't know, it's a low socioeconomic background. It's a hood for those who are, you know, colloquial terms. Um, I'm a daughter of a single mom. There were four of us. And my father, we labeled him a part-time dad. I'm thankful that he was there, but not as actively as most of our parents were in our lives. I think that for students who are born and raised by single parents, but also immigrant parents, um, it's part of the rhetoric that we learn to accept about our stories and how our upbringing is. And I think for me, I always saw a different route. And so in my chapter, chapter four, I defy gravity by talking about all the opportunities that I chose to bring around me so that I can elevate, we were talking about elevation earlier, so that I could elevate myself and also my generation and my legacy. And so my story began with, thankfully, my mom, who immigrated to from the Dominican Republic to the United States. And from there, a series of factory jobs led her to finally be able to remain in Harlem which has been our home where she raised all four of us Uh, we were privileged enough to have education through private school and so that was a bit of all we had we really just had school Um, we often were made fun of because of our uniforms and all these other things that kid would kids would make fun of each other for but what they didn't really know is that that's all we really had and that was more than enough for us and so from going in through the colleges of high school that i went to eventually i landed in you at u albany and so i was able to enter as a recipient of the educational opportunity program which provides financial support among social support psychological support peer support uh, for students of low socioeconomic backgrounds that was a term i've never heard of i just thought of the term poor kids uh, people from the hood again like i said Um, But in scholarly academic spaces, uh, students that come from the backgrounds I do uh, were labeled often as disenfranchised, uh, marginalized. Um, And that's not what I experienced in my life. And so, so much of Defying Gravity is me talking about how I set, I just broke records for stories of people that had lived the way I did and come from backgrounds that I did. Um, And I defied it. I chose not to accept that as what it was because I knew it was so different. And I think that often the narrative that we are sold is not often the truth. Um, And so, so much of Defying Gravity for folks who have the opportunity to read it is just talking about the experiences I traversed in college of learning about what the book said about my upbringing, about who I was, Mm -hmm. and actually experiencing who I was and the depths to all my experiences, the beauty and the struggle is found and so chapter four talks about a lot of that and just makes the connection of how even though my circumstances made it seem as if I wasn't getting far I've made it far and I know that there's only farther that I can go and it's just a motivation also for people that come from the spaces that I do to know that we can break boundaries and break barriers every day even in how we live and I'm thankful for being able to share that story.
1: So if I could just say one thing, uh, Joe, before you begin. Please. Notice the, how Chriselle uses the word we. Now, this might not have a, an impact on you, but it certainly does on me, because she had this tremendous support from her family. Um, and then when she got to the University of Albany, there's another group of people that formed a second family uh, for her and for other people who are from this, this kind of background. And this program called the EOP program um, has students that should not graduate, graduate at a rate that is much higher than the average. In fact, uh, they graduate in the 90%, they convert to sophomores in the 90% level and graduate uh, 10 points over the average of the average student at UAlbany. So classically in America, students that come from these backgrounds don't graduate at high rates. Here, you've got a program that graduates students like Chriselle, at a very high rate because it forms this family, this bond, this we that she talked about. And so uh, I think that's an important social science principle of us helping each other. Um, And it's um, a remarkable thing to think about that you can do on your own, as you often say, uh, make small changes with your peers uh, to get uh, your peers to go forward. And Christelle does this. She does this all the time. I don't even know if she knows how much she does it, but it's wonderful. It,
5: it happens. I think that also within our communities. That's what it. That's what we're talking about. The we. The we is so ingrained to who I am that I often don't explain it to people because I think it's so normalized. But it's not. A lot of people, especially in our society, are very individualistic. But I. Th- but what definitely got me through college was EOP and having a mother figure. Uh, she's a director now, and she was the one who created a way for us in a college environment where there wasn't a way for us. I don't think that we often talk about how students that come from urban areas are not accustomed to suburbia, especially with college. It's not normal for us to be in a college environment. I remember going into a pre-college program through EOP before I started school, and I would hear birds chirping, and that was so irregular to me. I came from (laughs) the precinct wasn't far from where I lived. The firefighters weren't, far, that was my normal, right? And so to go to a college environment and have even a difference in sound, even a difference in food, I definitely needed that peer support. And so much of my chapter talks about how the people around me who came from those same environments elevated each other because we, that's all we really had. We didn't have mom or dad or siblings. We just had one another and our desire to want to progress. And I think that made most of the difference.
3: and and the desire and the people who believed in you that you could do this
5: role models right I think that something I learned in my research was that students from the hood don't have role models your role models are honestly this is very stereotypical but it's you know it could be your local drug dealer it could be you know your vecina which is a neighbor in Spanish and She probably doesn't have a lucrative job, but she gives really kind advice. Those are our role models. And honestly, when you're trying to elevate, that's not someone who's going to steer you in that direction, right? And so the peer support, the individuals, the mentors, Jim being one of many, was what gave us at least the vision that I see someone, I can touch them, I can hold their hand, I can be them. And so I think that makes a big difference for a young teenager in college in a way that a lot of people don't even consider who their role models and who their mentors are, because they have so many people around them.
3: What an interesting experience, also, to be walking around in private school uniforms in the hood, where are you part of this group? Are you not part of this group? Where do you fit? I mean, did that did that sort of reality of being in a group, not in a group, how, how do you think that, that also inspired you? Uh, to be part of the goal of this book?
5: I think in larger part, it created a bit of cognitive dissonance where I felt as if I was an outsider.
3: Okay, can you just so, explain to our listeners what cognitive dissonance is? What is it? My,
5: my understanding of cognitive dissonance is basically what I perceived the reality to be and how I actually felt. And so oftentimes they would clash with what I wanted for myself and what I wanted for my community but in actuality, what my community really wanted for themselves, right? And so it created a back and forth, a struggle, an internal struggle, where I wanted to be better, but I, what I saw around me wasn't really better. And so oftentimes, of course, it did push me to want to be more. But then when I would come back home, it was this really internal struggle of, of questioning if my community wanted the same for themselves. And it's still, I can't tell you I have that question answered. I'm still kind of finding the solutions for that Hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: well we will
3: definitely be exploring this more Jim can we um shift over for a moment to our other guest
1: right I think it's important to uh to see several stories because then the mind can sort of pull out what is the similarity and we can talk about that after but Agatha is uh um, a person that I knew uh, at Queen's College. So she represents another public university, which happened to me and be in being my background. Um, and uh, when I first met her, um, she was coming out of her shell. Now her shell meant, <laughs> and I'm going to let her tell the story, being an immigrant, coming from Poland, not speaking English well enough, or at least doing it with an accent so that people... Made fun of her, so the title of her story is "Stereotype Threat: The Fear of Starting Over." And let me let Agatha tell her story.
0: Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, you you pretty much said it very well. Um, my chapter talks about you know being a teenager and being in those years where you make all your friends and you know all your new beginnings and everything, and uh, you have to face this big challenge in your life you know moving to a different country not knowing anybody barely really speaking the language because at that point I only knew British English I knew German so I knew Polish so everybody around me was just staring at me so weird and um, it was it was definitely an experience and uh, that's really what I talk about in in my chapter I talk about The psychology class that I took in high school, which was advanced placement, that really helped me understand the mind better, and maybe I feel like that's what really pushed me into, you know, pursuing that in college, really looking into colleges in the first place, and um, that's how I met Jim. I took this uh, pleasure and pain class, which I had really no idea what it was going to be about, and... You know, I fell in love. We, Jim and I had a great connection and I, you know, we ended up writing a blog together. We ended up starting teaching uh, Psych 101 together in like a flipped classroom type of way, which we teach up until this day. Mm -hmm. And I also ended up working with another professor that was teaching the class alongside Jim in a neuroscience lab. So I feel like my chapter is just about not giving up not letting the stereotype threat get to you and just you know keep moving forward
1: so let me just add one little piece to that uh agatha came to me uh, when we met in this class which was a large class and somehow we got talking afterwards and we got talking about teaching and she said you have to do something when you teach professor Stellar, to reach people like me you can't just give us the material in the class and expect us to learn it. You have to do something to draw us out. And I asked her what she meant by that, because I was about to begin teaching Psych 1. Uh, and so that was uh, a great great thing for me to have done, because she brought me all this material, TED Talks and other things about how uh, this technique, which we don't need to talk about, called a flipped classroom, and reaching out to students and having them um, do little exercises uh so we designed and taught that class at queens and then i left and went to albany and after i stopped being provost uh i i went back to the faculty and i said i want to teach that class again and called up and said are you still game and good fortune for me she said she was and so we are now doing it this semester we've done it three Mm -hmm. times here uh and, and i won't go through the details of the course but it's it turns out it's been pretty highly rated and i think it it does something now we'll see if it if it produces um better grades and upper classes or learning or more retention the kind of things that eop is famous for but you see the commonality here about being reached somehow um and also you'll notice that in both of these cases uh this was a duality i didn't reach down to them even though i'm older It it was a it was an equal conversation we reached each other I mean,
3: we talk about diversity, right? I mean, diversity at college. And, and I think this, this leads to a whole area that I'm fascinated by is why do, we, why do we think that there is so much diversity when we have so much in common? Uh, good question. Sorry. What do you guys think? Because it's such a... You're, you're, let, me, let, me, let me back up a bit. What what was the goal? What is the goal of the book, Diversity in College? What what are you messaging? What do you want people to take away from this book? Because they have great stories. I've had a chance to, to read through it. Each one has this message. But what are you hoping for? Hagrid, do you want to start and then we'll go to Priscil?
0: I do. So I think it's about you know the diversity in every one of us. It That's what's bringing us together. And that's what, you know, that was the point of the book is that everybody learns differently. We might come from different backgrounds. We might, you know, have different beliefs and all of those things yet are the things that bring us together. Yes. Yes.
3: There was, there's a a bumper sticker years ago. You are unique, just like everybody else. So, um, (laughs) what about you what was the goal for you
5: i my mind now i'm a very mental existentialist person so now i'm going through different thoughts about how we are all very different but the difference that we have is what ties us together and i think what jim beautifully did in this book was being able to create the separations in our individuality and allow us to find that power in our individual stories but then being able to come and collaborate and bring this collaborative brilliance together in a book. And that's why I think there's a power in diversity is because you you show the, the, the individual and how they are who they are by whatever means, but then you bring it together in the collective and you also give it power too. It's a both and situation.
1: Yeah. I also add something quickly here and that is that this book probably took an extra year to produce. Joe, because of the intense, wonderful conversations that we had as a team. Um, and we call ourselves now the book family. And that's actually <clears> the <throat> term Chriselle invented. Um, and I think that sort of uh, says it all because we really, each of us contributed to each other's chapter, even though Chriselle's and Agatha's stories are their own. They're curated, edited, massaged, appreciated by the other six or other five people There's eight of us in total um that were involved in it so uh it, it is it's really a wonderful collective work and we thought that like form follows function in architecture the idea of us being authors and and being able to tell that story and thank you for asking that question um is is a sort of a a, a story in itself about what the book is doing yeah uh- uh- who's the ideal who's the ideal reader is this a
2: is this a guide to people going to college
1: oh uh, i would say we would like to target undergraduates um but we would hope that mark you would read it and right. maybe that uh, football player son of yours would <laughs> uh get something out of it if you talk to him about it we were hoping by being authentic stories being authentic to, to be able to actually reach everybody but what we're most pleased about is when a college or a university and this book was uh, came out in december um it uh. gets adopted by students we were hoping that undergraduates would would read it and then talk to us and they're mm. starting to
2: mm. good i didn't realize it just came out
1: yeah it's
3: been uh, months yeah yeah and that that's that's absolutely part of why we, we wanted to get you guys on the show as soon as possible to to promote it and let people know it's there yeah. with that in mind how do people get a copy of the book where do they go
1: well we have a website um uh, which is diversity at um and uh it features a number of publishers now of course you can buy it on amazon but we also would like you to go to the website and look at all the other bookstores that sell it um Amazon has done great things for the world, but we'd like to have diversity in the books as, stores as, <laughs> as well, well as yeah. in ourselves. So Support small businesses, yes. Yes. <laughs>
4: yes. Small businesses. You'll, be, you'll be happy to know I linked the indiebound.org link in the comment section on Facebook Live.
1: Way to go. Thank you very Good much. Tom.
5: <laughs> Mark, so, I want to answer. Oh, sorry, Doc. I, no, I want to answer on, your question, on. too, of who is a book for. I also okay. thought of, we say it in the back of the book, that it's also for like higher education administrators and it's not a in the Uh, sense that this is completely tailored for them but it's more of a humbling experience for higher ed administrators to step out of their elevated seats and join and listen and read and really care for stories from students i think that what jim is fascinating in is that he was able to humble himself and meet us where we were at And I often think that within administrative roles, especially in higher education, I think the word higher just allows people to step into sometimes more of an egoic state, even based on their titles. And it Mm -hmm. allows people to understand beautifully what Jim did. And what he's so modest about is that he met us where we were at time and time and time again. This has been a production that I've graduated, it's been four years. And Mm -hmm. I started this my sophomore year. So this is almost seven to eight years of production that has really led to this like, this moment um, but it's also not only for the student and the scholar but it's also for the administrator to really step down from their higher positions and really like sit in and really listen and read and feel the the empathy of these stories and how we can make a change in an entire university
1: and by the way you have to notice Chriselle was the one that brought that up i didn't so i'd like to think that i'm living up to what Chriselle said about me but you see i still need help because we all need help. And so it's been a wonderful experience for me to be with them. And that's why I'm so happy to always appear with them because I still need help. So so would you say that the, what we're doing right now
3: is actually an example of experiential education?
1: Uh, let I mean, me take that one. If that's okay. I, I would. Please. For two reasons. One, I think um, it's it's a live experience. Uh, we're talking to each other. Um, we're listening to people tell their stories, and storytelling I think is a very important part of, of of experiential learning. You tell your story about your own life, and you have some experiences like working or being a community service or something else uh, in college that that can make that and the second thing is it goes more to the word of authenticity this is just a touch of the brain in here which i know you like dr joe and that is that we're really doing two things at once We're we've got the content here which we could write it down in the transcript and read it but there's also something else that's happening um and that comes out in the voice and if you're on zoom what you see in facial expressions and that is an emotional segment of it and when uh chriselle talks about the the um uh administrators being up there i think of the ivory tower and it's sort of gutless emotionless it's all logic and 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 that's just fine but if you want to be a a good person you need to have that learning from your direct experience you have to have your heart working with your head so this is a book from the heart and when Mm -hmm. it, it humbles people it does that because it gets them by the heart and shows them by example that they have something left to learn listen to yes. your students administrators for example
3: absolutely well there's that you know there's that terrible joke about you know how do you get a how does a professor change a light bulb you know they, they hold the light bulb and wait for the world to revolve around them so uh, you know and, and and don't take it first museum because I know that that you are not that kind of professor and 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 that that's part of of another aspect to the the book at some point you talk about in-group strength versus without out group disrespect and the idea that that we can build an in-group but it doesn't always have to be at the expense of an out group is that part of of how we not just i mean because it was it used to be the phrase you know we, we, we tolerate diversity which I thought was just a horrible phrase, you know. Why t- tolerate? We want to embrace it, but what do we do about this in group and the out group, and 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 administrators, and 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 the, the the challenges that we all have, and yet somehow, you guys, two of you, you you represent the resilience and and the way that we can address these challenges in, in such a productive way Chriselle, You want? did i i don't know that i've made it, any sense in that question at all but go ahead probably not gone
5: that's the work <laughs> no you've you've made so much sense i think that's the work the work is to be able to step out of your in group to step into an out group that doesn't make you feel comfortable it doesn't look like you it doesn't sound like you but there's something in that group that is going to elevate you and it's going to make you humble yourself in some way and to consider the world outside of your own blinders. And that's the work of society. I think this is a microcosm, what we're talking about here, of what everyone has to do. And I, take, I have a lot of cultural pride. I'm, again, my parents are from the Dominican Republic. There's so many beautiful things I can talk about with the Dominican Republic, but there's also some difficult conversations on anti-blackness that I can talk about with Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. But I can have those conversations, I can step into those spaces, and even though I know I won't always feel coddled or supported, I know that that's what I have to do, and I have to sit in a bit of that discomfort with an out group eventually to right those wrongs. And I think that as a society, we have to be able to step a little more outside of our comfort zone and our comfort nest with our people to step into other, other spaces, just to learn, just to listen. And then being able to do that paradigm shift once we all start doing it in little, little ways, it'll make a collective change that we're needing. Agatha, mm.
3: what, what are your thoughts on this?
0: No, absolutely. I agree. I agree with what Christelle just said. Uh, You know, it makes a lot lot of sense. And in my case, it was just kind of fitting in with a group of people that I didn't understand and a group of people that didn't understand me for the most part and tried to find a common language with them. Um, So I feel like each and every one of us had a little bit of that idea in them as we were writing the book as well.
3: Mm -hmm. What do you think the fear of inclusion is all about? I mean, why, why are human beings afraid of this at all?
1: So let me, let me try that one for just a quick second. And see if my colleagues would agree. I think we are just built and this goes back to sort of some basic neuroscience, uh, to, to live in groups. It turns out that, uh, evolutionary theory is that we were too expensive to make our brains required too much protein our our babies tended to require care for years so we just really had to function in groups so we did mm. and in those groups uh we developed processes that are unconscious uh you talk about one of them a lot oxytocin oxytocin seems to produce bonding and um it's in us all and as uh, paul access, says the best way to release oxytocin in another man is to give a welcome hug. The reason I picked the man is that oxytocin is a hormone that produces the milk letdown reflex and is probably involved in bonding of the mother to the child. Um, and that may be existing in all animals, even ones that don't live in groups. But, but this group dynamic meant that we were also sensitive to who wasn't in our group, who is a threat. And who's going to be the most competitive with the tribe of humans? Another tribe of humans. Right. And so I think we have these wonderful positive instincts to try to bond with each other. And that that's the other side of that coin is to see the outside as other. And so right. we either need to not do that, which requires the kind of work that Griselle was talking about, or we need to decide that we're just one giant planet and we're all the same. And there right. really isn't a difference that we're being silly about these differences Um, one or the other has to happen. And the best time, I think, to do that, frankly, or a good time to do it, is in college.
3: Mm. Yeah, I I could not agree more with you that, you know, we are one group. It's called humanity. I say that a lot. Um, And it is fascinating how, even with COVID right now, I don't know why human beings still have to have an identified enemy to come together as a group you know we, we still have to do that and COVID is, is just I think another example of that
5: but what I also think, think that we we don't fully acknowledge the ways in which society and constructs that have been placed onto us for ages for centuries within each racial group have created these divisions so I mm. think that there is a awareness of how we've been brought up even in this world from an inception with tribes but I think that we need to also give a level of acknowledgement to the systems that allow for us to live in this divisiveness, especially as Americans. I think this Westernization that we carry on our backs, it's a bubble that sometimes needs to be
0: bursted a little. Yeah, we
4: talked about- uh, Yeah. Quick, hold on,
3: hold on, I got to go ahead and then we'll
0: get back to Tom. Sorry. No, that's all right. No, I was just gonna bring up a point because it also can be judgment. Uh, People tend to stick to their groups because they're afraid of being judged. And that can also be applied to pretty much anything, any group.
3: So true.
4: Tom, did you want to chime in? Yeah, just adding on the uh, systems things. We talked about this last year with Jonathan Kahn about how we still are infected with this centuries old marketing ploy mm-hmm. to justify the transatlantic slave trade mm. uh, that you don't have to worry, they're not people.
1: Right. 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 And I wanted to just add that while we were doing this book, as Crystal mentioned, over years, the Black Lives Matter movement erupted sort of near the end. And our publisher said, let's get this thing out now because it's going to be timely. Um, mm. But it, it fits right in with all the things that we've been talking about. And Chriselle is absolutely right. It, this one is a cultural instinct and it it doesn't seem that we are even aware of it so one of the things that that you'll hear us talking about if you if you watch us in in other shows is uh, things like white privilege and acknowledging it Um, that's cultural uh, that's historic and it's part of America Um, so how do we deal with that and I think those conversations are also best had in college and maybe best had in the residence hall not in a specialized program yes they have to happen in programs we need to do that consciously but i think private conversations which we would like to see this book broker i'm really hoping that two people will pick the book up and read it and come together and talk about it in their dorm room yeah
3: yeah that there is this idea that we have more to lose than to gain and i think we really need to to change that paradigm we have so much more to gain than to lose You know, the I am approach is is basically saying that, right? Every time you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value, Mm -hmm. right? And everybody wants to feel valuable because every time you do something for someone else, you become a benefactor and that then increases your value. And in these small social groups that Jim is talking about, we needed to have value in order to remain part of that group. You have to contribute something or else you are at risk of being kicked out of that group and being lunch, in essence for a predator. (laughs) So, you know, we, we, we have, um, three guests tonight. Uh, and so usually in the last couple of minutes, um, we get to ask the questions, but I'm going to do this now so that, so that we have time for all three of you to talk about it. The, I am, as you know, is saying we're all doing the best we can. Uh, but we're influenced by four domains, our home domain, the social domain, which is everything other than your home, the biological domain of your brain and body, and what I call the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. This is what we've all been talking about. You know, how does somebody see me if they see me wearing a uniform? How does somebody see me if I'm not talking English the right way? How, How do people see me and potentially judge me? But because the four domains interact, a small change in any domain can have a big effect small changes can have big effects so what i'm going to ask each of you is what small change can you recommend to our listeners so that they can embrace more the idea of the diversity not just in college but in our everyday life jim i'm going to start with you uh and then we'll go to, to agatha
1: and then chriselle so i think what i would say is um get out Uh, interact directly Um, if you go uh, to visit someone really listen Uh, there's a saying that you have uh, two ears and one mouth and so it's better to use those two things than the one so uh, and be genuine about yourself including that you will need to learn something so in a word get out visit others uh, listen with respect Mm -hmm. Agatha
0: I would say, um, be teachable. You're not always right. Um, mm. But also, learn how to use your voice for good. Mm. Well, sure um,
5: sh- I hope I'm understanding you correct, if you're talking about the four domains, correct? Yes. And so the domain that resonates most with me is how I'm seen. And I think that what this book taught me, and was a personal journey, is having to navigate the course of my life and having to understand who I was outside of the Mm -hmm. purview of what everybody else wanted me to be. And so what I would recommend is knowledge of self. I think that people really need to do that introspection, talk to your mom, talk to your neighbor. I had to do, to write my chapter, I had to work with my older sister to be able to do that backtracking so that we can talk about our childhood and what that meant for us. And so I think that I would let readers or recommend to really dive into that self-introspection work at any age, at any level. I think even kids are capable of doing that. They're so imaginative. So it's understanding yourself and understanding how you see yourself outside of how everybody else sees you.
4: Yeah. And
3: I'm, I'm gonna just build on that and plug the IM again, because that's exactly what it's for. The am is saying we're doing the best we can. If you don't judge yourself, you have a better chance of really knowing yourself. If you can respect yourself, when you respect yourself, you will be able to look without the fear that you will be finding something that's less valuable. We are all doing the best we can. The second truth of the I am, everyone's got one, everyone's interested in what you think about them, which means you control no one, you influence everyone. Mm -hmm. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be so i'm going to go backwards this time start with chriselle then we'll go to agatha who's always been in the middle and then to jim so chriselle what kind of influence are you hoping to be
5: honestly this is a conversation i'm having with myself right now of how i want to position myself as a pioneer in the undoing racism work of america i think Mm -hmm. it starts here we're a cradle For America, for racism, we've birthed it in many ways. And I think we need to also dismantle it. And I know that's a huge word for a lot of people. But I would like to position myself. I am positioning myself and really doing that undoing racism work and really perpetuating positive stereotypes, talking about Black joy and Black prosperity.
3: Mm -hmm. Agatha?
0: I would say um, I would hope to maybe help people understand and bring in the idea of growth mindset, which is basically um, knowing that your brain is not just set in stone, that it's, you know, neuroplasticity, that it's, it can be changed. You can work on yourself. Um, You shouldn't self-handicap yourself. And just the idea of not giving up and pushing forward and, being true to yourself and listening to yourself and to others and again being teachable yeah
1: professor well i think i'm gonna have to go with um my field of so many years teaching and being an administrator in a university and so what i want is for universities to be responsive to their students uh, meet them where they live. Of course, we have the knowledge that we need to transmit as professors, but we have a lot to learn from them. And then by doing that, I hope we can address in a powerful way, as been discussed already, the issues of diversity and inclusion, which aren't bad, but can be and need to be so much better in higher education. Yeah. <laughs> I am so glad that you guys were here with us tonight
3: and included us in this diversity conversation. Thank you. Guys, we'll see you all next week on the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks, Ben.
0: Always a pleasure. All right.